This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. Uh, If you don't know, I'm Darren, one of the pastors here, and we are so excited that you've joined us, um, especially today. If you've been around, you know that we've been going through the book of John since August. And when we started John, I told you that we're going to go through John the same reason that he wrote John, John 20, verse 31. I've written these things that you might believe that Jesus is Messiah, that he's the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life. In our world right now, the world of TikTok and Instagram and progressive stuff, there are lots of definitions of Jesus out there right now that are not who Jesus said he was, right? So John said, I'm writing this so you know that he wasn't just a good guy, just a good teacher. But when we, went, we started this, I thought, man, there's one guy that I really would love to be a part of this. Uh, a guy that a few years ago wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity. I mean, what better person to approach a topic like this than a former homicide detective, <laughs> right? In a day, like if you look at the top of all the podcast charts, they're all, they're all crime junkie stuff, true crime stuff. What better person than this climate right now than a former homicide detective to cover this subject? So if you've been around a while for Christianity, you might know Jay Warner Wallace. Uh, he just released a book this year or last year called Person of Interest. Um, and it's unbelievably amazing. And as we are going through this this morning, I want you to know that tonight, um, uh, Jim's going to be back with Brent Kunkel. We're going to do, starting at 6.30, we're going to do uh, just a couple of hours of just intense Christian worldview, apologetic style. We still have a few spots open for that. And tomorrow, starting at noon through four, if you're part of the creative community, that means video, uh, arts, music, uh, we would love to have you. Uh, our friend Elisa Childers will be with us tomorrow, uh, as well as Brent, and as well as Jim will be back again tomorrow. If you want to be a part of that, we just need you to register so we know we have space. So you go to the Church Center app on your phone. You can find where to register for that. Both of those are amazing. Um, and, well, we'll talk about it in a little bit after uh, we keep connected with this stuff. So in the meantime, would you guys welcome... Jim, Jay Warner Wallace. Good man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Um, okay, so you know what? I remember when I first walked into a church like this, I was 35. Now, I had been in churches for like weddings or funerals, but that was it. I was raised in Los Angeles County. I didn't know any Christians growing up. I'm sure there were some Christians there. I just didn't know them, and I didn't have them in my family. But my wife wanted to go to church because we were raising kids. I had a six and an eight-year-old at the time, or maybe a five and a seven. And I remember she, she said, should we like, like teach them something bigger than us or more transcendent than we are? You know? And I thought, no. I wasn't raised that way and came out okay. Of course, every one of us thinks we came out okay, right? Now, at the time, I was working uh, I was working a bunch of different investigations. Most of my career was spent in Los Angeles County working uh, cold case homicides. Those are just unsolved murders. There is no cold case except for murders because it turns out every other crime you could commit, is, by statute, it will eventually close. But murders stay open. And so I was working on robbery homicide, and I saw that we had a bunch of unsolved murders. So I started opening those cases, and some of those were my dad's cases, because my dad was there before me. 
So I got some fun just closing his cases and then teasing him about it, right? Because he's lame and couldn't solve the case on his own. And so I, you know, that process of how do I examine something to determine it's true, like how do you know if something that happened in the past really happened the way they said it did, that was the skill set I tried to use to determine if Christianity was true. Now, a couple of years ago, I was asked to, to talk about this, and they gave me six minutes. Six minutes. Now, I got to write my own script, but I only got six minutes. It's hard to explain why Christianity is true to somebody in six minutes. I don't think you can actually even do it in a powerful way. But what I want to do this morning is just go a little bit deeper with you and share with you a bit of the process that I went through to determine if Christianity was true. Does that make sense? I am a Christian now. I became a Christian at 35. So let me just share with you some of that process. Now, I wrote about this in a book called Person of Interest. And I forgot to send out the link in the last service to people, but I'm going to send it out to you. But I'm going to send you a bunch of free materials at the end of this talk, okay? Because I just want you to be able to take another step in your understanding. Imagine a weird dystopian future world in which some regime has effectively gathered all of the New Testament scripture, every Bible, has put them all in a big pile and has burned them, destroyed every shred of New Testament evidence related to Jesus. Well, you might as well have done that because from my perspective, I wasn't interested in reading your stupid Bible. I really wasn't. Oh, you think Jesus is somebody? How do you know? Because you say so in this Bible? Give me a break. If he's who you think he is, there should be more than just four little gospels in the first century mentioning who you think he is. Like, if this is the stone you think he is, the rock that you're singing about, if you throw that rock in the water, it better have a huge ripple effect. I didn't see it. Well, how has he impacted anything? All kinds of world religions. No. So I wasn't going to read your Bible. You might as well just burn it. Look, uh, let's put it a different way. Um, I, I, I used to work uh, fresh homicides. That's where they call you out in the middle of the night because someone just got killed, and you get there, and you have evidence. You've got a body. You've got uh, blood spatter evidence. You've got material evidence. You've got a weapon. You've got things you can put crime tape around, and you can investigate, take photographs. But I've also had a bunch of cases. I think several of them have been on Dateline. I've been on Dateline more than anybody else. Some of these have been on Dateline. But I've had no body cases. In other words, a guy has a fight with his wife. He kills her. Have you ever watched Dateline? Well, then you already know that every amazing marriage ends in murder. <laughs> you know that, right? Because you've watched Dateline. That's true. Okay, wives, look next to you at your husband. That is your potential killer right there, sitting next to you. It always is. And so he kills his wife, and then he waits a week after destroying the body, and he drives into the net station, and he goes to the front desk, and he says, hey, I had an argument with my wife a week ago, and she, she left. Hasn't come back. And we take a missing persons report. And that gets assigned to a detective like three or four days later. If he comes in on a Thursday, we won't see it till Monday. Now we're, what, how, by the time I get it, 30 years later, there's nothing. There's not a single piece of evidence booked into the property room. They've sold the house four times. There's not a crime. Re- this is an empty crime scene now. How do I, now I suspect it's the husband, because that's who usually does it. 
But how do I know if he's the guy? How do I know if he really is our person of interest? How do I know that? If I've got nothing in the, this was kind of my view of Jesus. How do I know Jesus is who you say he is if I don't trust anything in your crime scene called the New Testament? Well, what I usually tell juries is that no crime happens in isolation, right? It's part of a timeline. There's that period of time before the crime occurs, then the crime occurs, and there's a period of time after the crime occurs. And if I don't know at all what happened in the middle, that's okay. Look, if that's a day when she just took off, no big deal. If it's a day when she was killed by her husband, that was an explosive day. And all bombs have a fuse. A fuse that burns for years as he's starting to get more and more angry or starting to cheat on her or starting to make plans or starting to prepare how she's going to get... And then on the day of the murder, he does something he shouldn't do and now that bomb explodes and you've got shrapnel all over the blast radius. This is the nature of bombs. So if you don't know what happened on the day of the explosion, it turns out I can probably demonstrate it from nothing more than the fuse and the fallout. Does that make sense? I call these fuse and fallout cases. And by the way, I illustrate them just like this for juries. I mean, I have a weird background. So my background was I was in fine arts. I got a bachelor's degree in design. Why are you laughing? And then after that, I got a master's degree in architecture from UCLA. And I was working at a firm in Santa Monica, California, when I decided to leave that job and uh, do what my dad had done for years before me. And that's how this all started. So when I get to do these for jury trials, I get to create my own art, okay? So this is what they look like when I go to trial. I'll typically say this is what these cases are like, and I'll show the jury everything that occurred prior to her going missing, how he's been talking about it and scheming this out and cheating on her and preparing and buying the materials he needs to get rid of her body. And then afterwards, he's going to do a bunch of stuff that's going to demonstrate that he's the reason why she's missing. So from just the fuse and the fallout, I'm going to demonstrate that he killed her. That's how we do these cases. So 25 years ago, when I was first looking at the case for Christianity, I said, you know what? I'm going to take the same approach with Jesus. I suspect there's a reason why you people are calling that the first century, when in fact, it's not the first century. It's like the, you know, how, how, I don't know how many centuries have passed before the first century, yet we call it the first century because something happened there. Something you think was explosive, well, if that's the case, there's going to be a fuse, right, that leads up to the first century. Well, it turns out there is. There's a fuse that leads up to the appearance of Jesus. It's got three strands. And there's going to be a bunch of fallout, right, stuff, that, ways in which the common era was forever changed. Well, that's called, that's called the, 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 the fallout. Now, I want to trace for you this morning just one aspect of the fuse, Okay. Look, we have some short time. So wait, I teach this class at Biola. It takes me 18 hours. So I thought about just locking the doors and keeping you guys in here for the next 18 hours. But I'm not going to do that. Therefore, there is a God. So I've just proved you God's existence right there. So just relax. Okay, here we go. First is a fuse. You realize that Jesus isn't the first God ever worshipped in history, Right? There's a bunch of gods that precede Jesus, worshiped by ancient people groups. So in this fuse that's burning toward the appearance of the first century, there's all these gods. There's a lot of people, by the way, who don't even think that Jesus really ever lived. They think he's just a recreation, another myth in a series of myths, borrowing from the prior myths. 
These folks I call Jesus mythers. Now, they actually exist. There's a lot of scholarship on this. A lot of people have written books about this. As a matter of fact, I used to take, I was a high school pastor for a number of years, and I, I took, this is after I became a Christian, of course, and I used to take my high schoolers to places to teach them theology and to teach them worldview. For the theology trip, I would take them to Salt Lake City for a week, and we would train for eight weeks before we would go, because that, they use the same terms that we use, but they've redefined all of the theological ideas. So if you want to know what Christianity teaches, take your students to Salt Lake City. But for worldview, I would take them to UC Berkeley. <laughs> you probably have a similar school here. And if you want to talk to atheists, so I would bring them up there. I remember one time I brought them up there, and I had an atheist professor. He came into our group. He says, I remember we were standing in the back of the room. I had about 40 students. And he said to us, we're about eight hours south of Berkeley. And he said to me, uh, before he talked to our students, he says, watch this. I'm about to blow your students' minds. I said, knock yourself out. Up he comes. He says, students, I'm going to give you a description of a deity. I want you to tell me who this is. And he puts this description on the wall. I remember I had a student who had, I mean, we trained for eight weeks before we go. But I had one young lady who was a friend of one of my students and I allowed her to come and she had not trained. I never did that again. So she's there watching this, having not been trained for anything like this. She immediately raised her hand, that's Jesus. He says, no, that's not Jesus. That's what he was hoping everyone would say. This is Mithras. This is a Persian deity that precedes Jesus by about 400 years uh, in Persia. And he was actually worshipped in Rome. As a matter of fact, any Roman basilica you go to, there's one, for example, I have visited next to the Colosseum in Rome. If you dig down below the basilica, what's at the bottom layer? A temple to Mithras. This is who Jesus was stolen from. And this shook her. That night she came to us and she said, I'm not sure I can pray. I'm not sure there's a God to pray to anymore. Now, of course, the sad thing about that was that she wasn't trained to know that basically none of this is true of Mithras. As a matter of fact, it's not even an exaggeration. It's just flat not true. People will say things, believe it or not, that aren't true. Can you imagine? It happens. These two things are true, though. He did promise his followers immortality, and he did that God stuff because every God of antiquity does God stuff. He performed miracles. You need to know what's true, folks, because we have a lot of sheep in the church and not many sheepdogs. We need to be sheepdogs. So I want to show you, kind of give you a list of, of 15 common characteristics of ancient myths I'm not going to go through all 15. I'm just going to show you a couple. But I want you to know, I did research. I read all the ancient mythologies, and I wanted to know, what do ancient people expect of God? It turns out they expect the very same thing that moderns expect of God. 86% of people on planet Earth believe in a higher power. Not necessarily Christianity or Islam or any of the major religions, but if you ask them, okay, this higher power you're, th you're thinking about, can you describe him for me? You'll get common characteristics. Because we have certain common expectations if there's a God. Well, the ancients did too. And because I'm a good Baptist, I made sure that every one of these starts with the letter I. Okay? Just so you know. That was not easy, okay? But I did. So I'll give you a couple of these. For example, 
most but not all ancient mythologies, the God who does come has been predicted in some way. Someone's been talking about him from the past. Someone says, you know, this is not uncommon. I think this is a common expectation because generations of people have been thinking about God. Someone's probably said something two generations ago and that is then interpreted as a foretelling of God. So this is not unusual. And you see this in several ancient mythology. Not all of them, but several of them, okay? Not only that, um, you'll see that most, not all, Ancient mythologies are seen as imperial in some way, as royal, as regal. Why? Because God is thought of as powerful. And the only, only thing we have in common is that if we're being ruled by a king, for example, well, he's powerful, so we equate the king's power to God's power, or vice versa. Does that make sense? So that, to me, doesn't surprise me much either, and you'll see that many ancients will do this. Some, but not all, will appear in a weird way. An unnatural, supernatural way. Well, yeah, but if you're thinking that God has got supernatural ability and supernatural nature, you probably think that his emergence would also be supernatural. Not everyone's born of a virgin. Mithras emerges from the side of a mountain, leaving a hole. To say that Mithras was born of a virgin in a cave is a joke. He pops out of the side of a mountain. <laughs> but some are born out of someone a previous god's thigh. They emerge in weird ways because they're thought of as God. Now, I'm going to show you a list of all of the 15 attributes. There they are, okay? I'm not going to go through all of them, but I will do this for you. Let's put them on a timeline. Let's start with ancient, <clears throat> the ancient realm leading up to the first century. I'm going to list all of these deities in the order in which they appear as the fuse burns up to the first century. I'm listing the majors, the major deities, Okay? Above each deity, I'm going to list the attributes that they share in common, the 15 common attributes. Now, what you'll notice here, uh, that above each deity, like for example, above this deity, not all of the attributes are there, huh? There's a gap right there, there's a gap right here. No one's got more than 10 attributes. No one. But there's sometimes just a different 10. No one's got less than about six or four in that range, five. Got it? I'm gonna show you the four that are the most common, most similar. These four share 10 common attributes. Yet no skeptic is saying that Buddha is just a recreation of Osiris. No one says that. Well, you could say it. He shares all those common attributes. If you're gonna say that Jesus is just a recreation of some prior mythology, it's as stupid as saying that Buddha is a recreation of Osiris. I just want you to see why it's stupid, okay? Yes, there are stupid things in the world. <laughs> by the way, the gospel fix, fixes every kind of stupid thing you can think of, by the way. But I want you to see it. Now, interesting, let's go the other way. Let's go horizontally. Here's the most common attribute. You see it in every single one. Every god can do god things. Duh. But it's true. If you think God can do, you know, if you think God is God, he can probably do supernatural things. Here's the next one. There are some gaps in it. Uh, most gods appear miraculously, but not every god. Uh, most gods uh, have the power to defeat death, but not every god. Most gods have the power to give you eternal life because they are eternal too, but not every god. But you see the commonalities here, right? Now, here's what I thought was interesting about this. As an investigator, I'm thinking, okay, so in antiquity, 
People expect God to be a certain way. Even today, people have the same 15 common expectations of God, even if they don't believe in a Christian God. But interestingly, no one possesses all 15 characteristics. That's weird. No one possesses all 15 characteristics until the first century. And suddenly, one person personifies all of it in its totality. He meets every expectation of people who think about God more robustly than anyone else. Does that strike you as odd? It struck me as odd. How is it that this guy meets all of our expectations? And it's not just for ancient pagans. Um, I'm going to give you this, by the way, this is what Lewis says about it, C.S. Lewis. Do you know who that is? He puts it this way. He uses the word myth not to mean a lie or a fable. He uses the word myth to mean simply what it's supposed to mean, which is a narrative story about deity. Got it? He says that Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference in that it really happened. And one must be content to accept it in the same way. Remember that this is God's myth, and the other myths are men's myths. That's right. They are the pagan stories. The pagan stories are God expressing himself through the minds of poets, using what they had access to in antiquity. But Christianity is God expressing himself through what we call reality, real things. Now, it's not just the pagans. Here's a description from Scripture Your scripture. What deity am I talking about, class? Well, it kind of sounds like Jesus. But it's not Jesus. That is Joseph. You ready to play the game? I'll give you another description. Sounds like Jesus to me. This is Moses. But it sounds like Jesus, huh? I'll give you another description. This is? This is Joshua. How about this one? David, good. Who said David? Raise your hand. You get the, you're the Sunday school graduates right there, I can tell. How about this one? That is Jonah. Interesting, right? It's not just the pagans have common expectations of God. It's that the Jews, through the patriarchs, have a shape for the Messiah, have a shape for that divine leader, for, that, for God incarnate who's going to come and lead them. And this is the most robust description of Jesus you will ever find, yet none of it is Jesus. This is instead the history of the patriarchs leading up to Jesus as that fuse burns toward the common era. Interesting, right? Because if you took this description of, of deity and match and put on it the 15 attributes of the pagans, Now you have the most robust description of Jesus ever. Why? And by the way, none of these people, they only have one-fifth of it. No one here has the entire, only Jesus in the first century has all of it. 
He matches everyone's expectations most robustly. Why would that be the case? Why would God take the expectations of pagans who aren't even Jews and marry them to the expectations of the Jews who are looking for the Messiah? Why would this be the way that God enters into the world? Well, I think part of the answer to that is in that word, expectations. Every expectation requires two things. It requires, right, think about it, somebody who's expecting, expectors, and the thing you're expecting, the expected. Expectations require expectors and expected. Let me illustrate it for you this way. When I became a Christian, actually, I was working undercover. And I was, um, I didn't cut my hair or much of anything for four years, okay? So I looked pretty bad. And we were working surveillances sometimes for local crime uh, sprees. So let's say, for example, you've got a bunch of burglaries in the West End, and you got an informant, and the informant says, yeah, Joe so-and-so is the guy doing the burglaries. Really? Okay, so we will simply go and sit up on Joe and follow him around for a few days. He'll probably get high for a couple of days, but once he runs out of money, he'll probably do another burglary, and we'll be there to see it. And we'll take him to jail right afterwards. That's how you arrest these guys. Well, sometimes you don't get an informant, and you got a bunch of burglars, so what do you do? You do what's called a geographic surveillance, and those are terrible. Because you don't know who to look for. You're sitting in neighborhoods, separated five guys in plain cars, separated all over the West End, which has got hundreds of blocks. There's no way you're going to be successful on this. And sure enough, one day, I'm out there sitting on one of those surveillances, and I hear on the radio, on the police radio, that we had a burglary like two blocks away. Guy goes out to the store, he comes back from the store, and his house has been burglarized. And so they tell him, well, wait on the curb, I'll send a unit. The dispatcher tells him this. I hear all this on the radio. I'm like, what am I, luck, I'm two blocks away, I missed it. So I raced over there in my plane car. I thought, I'll just jump the call real quick, and I'll talk to this guy and see if he, like, maybe he saw something that will help us. Maybe these guys are still in the neighborhood. Maybe we can still catch him. So I drive over. I was driving a stanza, I think, at the time. This is ancient history. So I would jump out of the car, and sure enough, this dude would not talk to me at all. He's waiting for a police officer, but he won't give me the time of day. Why? Well... Two minutes later, a police car drives up. My partner, he's in uniform. He comes out, and now this guy's entirely cooperative. When he called the police, he expected as the expector for a police officer to show up. I did not meet his expectation. He wouldn't cooperate with me. There's a simple rule. The more the expected meets the expectations of the expector, the better the result. Do you hear me? This isn't just true for cops. This is also true for Jesus. He meets the expectation of the expectors. Here's why this is so important. Let's go back to our timeline for a second. We do this in criminal trials. We call this red zoning. Do you guys know, uh, you guys ever watch NFL Network, Red Zone? Okay, it's on right now, and we are here. (laughs) I have it taped, okay, it's on DVR. I will spend the next eight hours just watching the red zone. No commercials. Seven hours of no commercials and football. Doesn't get any better than that. And Scott Hansen, who hosts the red zone, is a very committed Christian guy. And he's a huge fan of Christian apologetics. So you have a brother on the red zone. I call this red zoning, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put on this timeline when each god is worshipped. 
Remember, no one's worshiping Osiris anymore. We started back here in 3000, we ended in 250. Now I'm gonna put on top of Osiris every other major deity. I want you to see when people began worshiping the deity and when they stopped worshiping the deity. Here's why I'm showing you this. If the real God of the universe wanted to come at a time when the most active worshipers of all the other gods were simultaneously worshiping what they expected because he knows he's going to exceed their expectations. Like Paul says, you people on Mars Hill, you are very religious. I see you even have a monument here to an unknown God. You've imagined a number of things about God, but we saw him. I want to share with you how he will blow your expectations out of the water. But that would mean that God would have to come in the overlap, the red zone, the area where the most active worshipers are still worshiping their gods. He'd have to come here. If he wants to meet and exceed the expectation of the most expectors. Are we clear so far? Now, I didn't talk about the other two fuses, but I'll just briefly go over them right now. If you wanted to also come when the ability was there to communicate the truth about Jesus, well, you probably wouldn't come when they're pushing pictograms into clay tablets. You'd want to come when one local government ruled the known world, the Roman Empire. Because now they've mastered things like the Etruscan alphabet, Koine Greek, papyrus. They've got a postal system. During the Pax Romana, a 200-year period of peace in which they controlled the entire region, they spent more money on roads, bridges, and tunnels than any other civilization. You know that expression, all roads lead to Rome? Yeah, because they did. Those very roads are the roads that Paul took in the book of Acts. They weren't even available to, to Paul until Rome built the roads. If you wanted to come when the infrastructure of government and culture was in place so that this truth about God could be communicated broadly, well, now you have to wait until this period. So I'm going to overlap this with the spiritual fuse. Look how much smaller the red zone is. But it turns out there's another fuse. It's the prophetic fuse of Jews who are waiting for the Messiah. Daniel, in chapter 9 of Daniel, he says that the Messiah is going to come between an edict to restore Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Well, that's a period of time we can lock into history. Daniel's prophecy says that the Messiah is going to come here. Now, this overlap. Look at the red zone. That's 100 years, folks. Between 29 AD and about 70, I mean 29 BC and about 70 AD. And what's right in the middle of that? Jesus of Nazareth. You know, Paul says in Galatians 4 that Jesus comes in the fullness of time. What does that even mean? Now you know. It was in the fullness of the fuse. The fuse was burning, opening up a window of opportunity. It happens to be right there. So I just, when I saw that, I said, oh, that's odd. <laughs> that's interesting to me. As a, I was not a Christian when I discovered this. So I thought, okay, let's look at some of the fallout. I'm not going to show you uh, everything because we're running out of time. I'm just going to show you one very quick thing in the fallout. I just want you to notice, though, when I did the fallout for this, because I'm a good Baptist, did you notice that each word ends with the T-I-O-N? Did you see that? Each word in the fallout ends with T. 
Let me say it again. Each word, okay. You people, I swear. Okay, so I'm going to focus on this one aspect. We were talking about deity. It turns out that Jesus has impacted the way we think about deity like no other person. Look, here's the timeline, right? So there's this period of time before Jesus and period after. Now, there's a bunch of religions that come after Jesus. Have you thought about that, right? Islam, Baha'i, there's a bunch. Okay, so here they are. It turns out that all of these post-Jesus religions love them some Jesus. As a matter of fact, they have merged Jesus into their systems. They mention him in their scripture. They've modified themselves to embrace him. But what if I told you that the religions that preceded Jesus, those also merge, modify, or mention Jesus? How could that be? I mean, he's not even here yet to mention because these religions made it past the first century. These religions existed in the common era also. And on this side of Jesus, guess what? They all changed their, their, their format to embrace Jesus. They never mentioned Jesus prior to Jesus, but now Jesus is part of their system. Let me show you what I mean. So if you look at, for example, on a timeline here, one o'clock will be the most ancient religions, 12 o'clock will be the most current. Let's go back a little bit. Hinduism precedes Jesus. You know that, right? But it turns out that Hindu leaders love Jesus. They've incorporated Jesus into their system. They see Jesus as yet another piece of their system. And in fact, they will repeat the story of Jesus. The leaders of Hinduism will repeat the gospel claims about Jesus to their own people. So in other words, if you're living somewhere in the world where Hinduism reigns, you know something about Jesus from your worldview. Not from, you could burn every Christian book. You could burn every New Testament. You're still gonna recover some Jesus from Hinduism. No one's worshiping Addis anymore. But they were in the common era very early. And on this side of Jesus, Suddenly, Annas is starting to sound like Jesus. Why? Because they were bending to the major deity. Jesus affected the worship of Attis. Not just that, Heracles, the Greek god, Hercules, the Roman god version of this, right? It turns out that after Jesus comes, suddenly the story of Heracles or Hercules changes to include these descriptors. This is never included pre-Jesus. He's starting to sound like Jesus. Why? Because of Jesus. There are people who still worship Krishna today, globally, but they do so including Jesus. They now describe him as the perfect guru, the perfect guru. Jesus is in Hare Krishna, if you know anybody who still uh, is a Hare Krishna, then not only that, they will describe the New Testament in their own writings of their leaders. So if you're somewhere in the world where Krishna reigns, you know something about Jesus just from your religious leaders that are talking about him. They've included Jesus. Okay, what about Mithras? Okay, no one's worshiping Mithras anymore. Sorry. And yes, it is true that Roman basilicas sometimes are built on Mithraic temples. You know why? Because if I come down here in the south, what's the most popular fast food joint you have here in the south? What is it? Chick-fil-A? Jesus chicken. Okay, got it. So let's say you go to a Jesus chicken store, but later on, I'm a Taco Bell, and I'm going to take over this part of the region. When you close that Chick-fil-A down, I'm putting my Taco Bell on top of your Chick-fil-A because you already go there to get uh, meals all the time. That's what was happening with these temples. As they were closing... The Christians just said, hey, that's a good spot. <laughs> it's a good place for a little, um, you know, outlet. But Mithraic believers, they started doing the Lord's Supper in Rome. They never did that in Persia. They get here, now they're following Christians' leads. 
Christians did not copy from Mithraic believers. Mithraic believers copied from Christians. Not only that, now sh- uh, by the way, uh, Buddhism, very, very ancient, precedes Jesus. Buddhists love Jesus. They think he is an, on the road to Buddhahood. They have a place for Jesus. And Buddhist leaders will always talk about Jesus and give you his sermons, his parables, his life history. If you knew nothing about Jesus from the New Testament, but you happen to be in a place in the world where Buddhism reigns, you know something about Jesus from your leaders. Now, what I've done so far is talk about these are the ones who precede Jesus. Now, let's flip this quickly and go to the ones that follow Jesus, Islam. You realize that on the pages of the Quran, Jesus sounds a lot like Jesus, as a matter of fact, these attributes of Jesus are affirmed by Muslim scripture. He's everything that he is to us. He's a prophet of higher status than, G- than Muhammad. He is the ruler who will come back to judge the living from the dead. That's not from our Christian scriptures. This is from what the Muslims are saying. So if you are someplace in the world where Islam reigns, you know something about Jesus just from the Quran, even if no Muslim leader was willing to hat tip Jesus. Now, Baha'i, Baha'u'llah, saw himself as a manifestation of God, but he also saw Jesus. Baha'u'llah said all of this can be reconstructed from the writing of Baha'u'llah. You're not going to get rid of Jesus by destroying a New Testament. You've got to destroy all the Baha'i stuff, too. And he sees, he, Jesus has got a role. He's actually an important figure inside the Baha'i religion. So if you're someplace in the world where Baha'i is reigning, guess what? You know something about Jesus, too. Let's flip this for a second and go to um, um, oh, Ahmadi Muslims. Oh, yeah. Ahmadi Muslims actually think that Jesus visited them. Their scripture affirms a lot of the New Testament stories. You will learn all of this about Jesus just from Ahmadi Muslims. And if you're someplace in the world where Ahmadi Muslims gather, you know something about Jesus just from Ahmadi Muslims. Now, I will tell you this. It's hard to nail down what any New Age believer believes, okay? Okay. <laughs> It's that, it's that proverbial jello to the wall kind of thing. It's really hard. But like Deepak Chopra, for example, these folks love them some Jesus. There's a place for Jesus amongst New Agers. He's something. Okay, I, I'm only showing you all of this because here's a layer of all of the world religions that are not Christian. Just not Christian. There's only a few countries in here that are not covered by someone in these groups. All of the rest of the planet will tell you something about Jesus, even if every New Testament document was destroyed. You get that from the non-Christians. So here's my point. All of these world religions, by the way, this is what you can get about Jesus from non-Christian scripture. That's a pretty, you can get enough information about Jesus to be saved as a Christian from the pages of non-Christian scripture. That's how much data is out there. That's crazy, right? Because here's why it's crazy. Because while all of these world religions, they want to borrow something, they want to identify with Jesus, they want to point to Jesus in some way, Jesus never returns the favor. It's not like he didn't know about Buddha. It's not like he didn't know about Addis. It's not like he didn't know about Hinduism. He says, no, I'm the only way. I am the truth and the way and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. It's a very different approach. Look, we started 
with this model for fuse and fallout that we use in criminal trials. And I kind of tried to flip it with you so you can see this is the template I used. Now, I did a bunch of other stuff, don't get me wrong. I wrote a whole book called Cold Case Christianity, which just looks at the reliability of the gospel accounts. That's not what we're talking about today. I'm telling you, you would know what you need to know about Jesus even if there was no New Testament. But the New Testament is reliable. That's a different talk. But I just wanted you to see it. But here's what I didn't tell you. No one has had a bigger impact on literature than Jesus of Nazareth. No one's been written about more than Jesus of Nazareth. I don't care what database you look at, what library you go to. Globally, no one has been written about more than Jesus of Nazareth. It's not just, it's screenplays and movies. No one's been portrayed in movies more. The, the highest the highest viewed movie in the history of movies is about Jesus. The movie translated into more languages than any other movie is about Jesus. There are Christ figures. All Marvel comics are Christ figures. There is no genre of literature globally called Buddha figures. Because there aren't any. It's Jesus that impacts not only what's written about him from a nonfiction perspective, but what's written about fiction is dominated by Jesus. From just the non-Christian authors in the first four centuries of the common era, you can reconstruct the entire story of Jesus. You can destroy all of the Christian scripture. You're not gonna get rid of Jesus unless you're willing to destroy the history of literature. But it's not just that. No one has been painted, etched, sculpted, drawn more than Jesus of Nazareth. Globally, it's not just a Western phenomena. Look, I, that's my whole love is, is the history of art. Art history is a series of isms. Impressionism, expressionism, Dadaism, popism, all the way through it. They're isms. Look at every ism, whatever your favorite ism is in history of, of art. Google the top three artists in that ism. Guess who the one common figure they have in common as an inspiration? They've painted him, sculpted him, etched him, drawn him. It's Jesus of Nazareth. I do not think that um, maybe Salvador Dali, but I know that Andy Warhol is not a Christian. I don't think that Picasso is a Christian. I could be wrong. Yet, they've drawn, Andy Warhol has drawn Jesus a ton of times. <laughs> Look, he's gonna either infuriate you or inspire you, but you're gonna do something with him because he's that kind of figure. And from just the art, before the Dark Ages, you can reconstruct every scene and every gospel. This is just the gospel of Mark. And I only did the gospel of Mark in the book. You know why? Because it's a small gospel. And I didn't want to do the big ones. But it turns out you can do them for every gospel. Unless you're willing to destroy all of those locations, all of those surfaces, you will not erase Jesus. It's not just that. It's music. We crush music. There is no contemporary Buddhist music industry. I'm just telling you. There's one place in the world where humans come together every week to sing from the stage to a live audience. It's called the church. We dominate Christian. Uh, I went ahead and did a database search of every genre, every style of music at IMDb, Billboard Magazine, and Rolling Stone. I gathered all of those names over the last 100 years. The top artists. And I went through their catalog. This was hundreds and hundreds of music groups from Rolling Stone, Black Sabbath, all, all the way pop, hip-hop, country, all the way through all of them. All but two had sung a song about Jesus. 
Frank Zappa song I think was the best. It's called Jesus Thinks You're a Jerk. I think it's a great, it's hilarious. But you either hate him or love Jesus, you're singing about him. Think about it. It's not just that. It's that we have built music from the ground up. You realize that nobody had musical notation until a Christian invented musical notation for use in the church. No one was singing harmonies until Christians invented harmonies for use in the local church. Nobody invented a major or a minor scale until Christians invented major and minor scales for use in the church. Did you ever, these instruments you see up who were invented by Christ followers for use in the church. You may not even like anything that we do in church, but if you're singing something, you can thank a Christ follower because you're singing something because of Christ followers. We crushed it. And from just the music in the first 300 years of the common era, you can reconstruct the entire story of Jesus. And I went back and I cited all this. Trust me, I've given you sources in the book. I just want you to know it's, this is true. It's not just that. The weirdest thing is that in science and education, no one has been involved in science and education. Education first. All modern universities came from three universities in Bologna, Paris, and Oxford. Those are Christian universities. From those three Christian universities, 22 daughter universities emerged. From those 22 daughter universities, every father of science in the scientific revolution was trained. The fathers of science are the founders of each discipline. I challenge you in the book we did it, I challenge you to see who is the father of every major scientific discipline from chemistry to astronomy to quantum mechanics. Take a look. They're Christ followers. No one has won more Nobel Prizes in the sciences than Christ followers. All the other groups, including the atheists and agnostics and free thinkers, the Jewish people, the Hindus, the Buddhists, all of them, put them all together. We've done more than all of them combined. Times three. No one has founded more universities. Take every other worldview. Add them up. I have a list in the book. We've founded more universities than every other group combined times 10. The top 15 universities in the world today, they were founded by Christians. If you just go to their universities, some of them don't even like Jesus anymore. But if you go to their buildings and you ask, where are your oldest buildings? Who do you think you're going to find on their buildings? Jesus. You can construct this description of Jesus from just the history of, of, of science. That's more, you get more information about Jesus from science fathers than you do from church fathers. It's true. And of course, he's impacted religion, and you can reconstruct his entire story from world like we already talked about. Why am I telling you this? Because look, when I first examined this, I said, this is odd to me that this guy would be history's person of interest, that this is the guy that you would rename your calendar for. Why this guy? Let me show you everybody else who lived in the first century. There they are. Do you recognize any of those people? No. You know why? Because they're nobody. And they led nations. They ruled armies. They did not change history. They had no impact on literature, art, music, education, science, and world religions. These are the people who are just the classic greatest leaders of all humans in all time. None of these people impacted literature, art, music, education, science like Jesus. None of them. These are the people who said they were God or ruled uh, as a, a led as a, a religious leader. None of these people impacted literature, art, music, education, science, or world religions like Jesus did. 
These are the people who said they were the Jewish Messiah. Did you know there's a bunch of these? Yeah, there's a bunch of these. None of them impacted, they aren't the Jewish Messiah, sorry. So they had no impact. Instead, it's this knucklehead who's born in some small little town and then raised in another nowhere town who only goes about 200 miles total start to finish. This guy who was pursued by people who were powerful, rejected by people who were religious, the people who said they loved him eventually abandoned him. This guy who had no social media at all, never led a nation, never ruled an army, never wrote a sonnet, never wrote a book, never had a formal education, never had a wife or children to extend a legacy. This guy who was then falsely accused, brutally humiliated and executed, and then they had to borrow a grave to stick him in the ground. This is the guy who ends up changing everything. How can that be? I just want you to think about it. How can that be? It seems to me there's only a couple of options here. Can you think of a fictional character that could have this impact? How could any fictional character have? This is why I don't think he's a fictional character. And can you think of another human who's had this impact? I can't think of any other human who's had this kind of impact, and that's why I don't think he's a human. This is why I think this speaks to his historicity, and this speaks to his deity. Of the three options, Jesus is either man, myth, or Messiah. Which matches the impact? It's the Messiah one, guys. And that's why I knew this is not just a person of interest. This is the God of the universe who creates persons. It's the God of the universe you should be interested in. So let me tell you what I see at every church, because I get to speak at churches around the country. Stuff matters to people, but not always the right stuff. I think Jesus matters. And even as an atheist, if you've got atheist friends or you're in this room right now and you're like, I'm checked out of Christianity, but you have some things that matter to you, here's what I suspect. I suspect the stuff that matters to you as a non-believer is the stuff that mattered to me as a non-believer. It was this stuff. Yet it turns out that stuff that interests most of the non-believing world is utterly dependent upon Jesus and his followers. This requires Jesus. He doesn't matter because this stuff was influenced by him. He influenced this stuff because he always mattered from the very beginning. Now, I'm going to send something to you. I'm going to send it to you from our website, which is coldcasechristianity.com. And I'm going to send you the entire video with all of the fallout, all pieces of fallout, all of the fuses. And you have to get it by doing something you're not going to like because you guys get all weird about numbers. You're going to text the word detective to this number. I didn't pick this number, okay? So chill out. It's got a lot of sixes in it. And I know you Christians just hate sixes. But it's text the word detective to 66866. 66866. And I will send you all the materials, okay? Now hear me for a second before we go. Have you noticed that nationally the church is like about probably 60, 40 women? Church attendance is about 60, 40 women, which is great because I think women, you know, especially if you're raising your, this is awesome. But men, it's far more likely if you're in this room right now and you came because your spouse is twisting your arm to go to church, you're probably like me. It's probably far more likely you're an unbelieving man coming to church because of your wife than you're an unbelieving wife coming to church because of your husband. It could be, though. 
But I just guarantee you in a church this size, there's a bunch of folks who are just good spouses who come to church because they're, like me, I went to church because I wanted to honor my spouse. My dad still does this. He thinks that Christianity is a useful delusion. He would affirm you, doesn't think it's true. Okay, if you're in this room right now, because that's you, that has to stop today. Time is short, folks, and the world is changing around us. I tell officers all the time, every officer who dies in the line of duty did not think they were going to die in the line of duty the day before. They didn't even think they were going to die in the line of duty that morning. You are not guaranteed a full shift. You might, you might not. This is not just true for officers. It's true for all of us. What are you waiting for? Look, if there is a God of the universe who can snap everything into existence from nothing, he has the power to eliminate imperfection, including moral imperfection. That's why I know that that kind of God is not a good God. He is a morally perfect God. Look, if God was just good, I'd be okay, because I'm good sometimes. But if God is morally perfect, I am never that. You cannot stand in front of that morally perfect God because the best you've ever been is good. And that's by your definition. <laughs> Which is, is, that definition sucks. Sorry, it just does. You gotta make a decision today, folks. Don't leave this room until you make the decision. Right. No, I'm just being serious. Yeah. Let's pray. Father, we know that um, we're not you. And there are people in this room that you just need to hear their prayers. Please hear their prayers. And they're just going to pray to you in their own hearts, in their own minds, in their own thoughts right now, their own prayers. We know we are not perfect. We are fallen. We're a mess most of the time. So, Father, just hear our prayers right now as we confess that to you, that we can't stand before you on our own. We, we confess that to you right now in our prayers. Hear our prayers. Father, we know we need a Savior. We know you came, changed everything in history. It's so obvious, and we walk right by it every day, and we want to repent of that. We want to repent of our sin. We want to accept you, Jesus, as our Savior, the God who changed everything. Hear our prayers. Father, we want to live a different life. We want to know more clearly who we are, how we're supposed to live. What's our purpose? Why are we here? What do you have for us? Who are we supposed to be? Just... Help us to be renewed, to be changed forever. We pray that your spirit will change us, Father. Just hear what we have to say to you. Father, we just make a promise. We will, we will do better. We will not do more work. We can't earn it, but we will at least give our thoughts to you, give our lives to you, give our passions to you. We ask for your forgiveness, for you to save us and renew us, and we pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. And everyone here says...
Amen. Thanks, Jim.